The following program, The Kitchen Table Progressives, is sponsored by The Kitchen Table Progressives and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management. To another edition of Kitchen Table Progressive, Paul Richardson here, inviting you to join us around the table for an hour of casual conversation on law, civics, and politics, driving the current issues, where the menu is progressive and the table manners are unapologetically liberal. It's been another crazy week. I think we can count on that being par for the course for the next several months, probably seven months up until the election, and maybe even after that. Uh, Donald Trump fined $354.9 million in disgorgement penalties. That means cough it up. Cough it up, Donald. Uh, In his business fraud case, he was already found guilty of fraud by Judge Angeron uh, several months ago. Now the penalties are $354 million. But uh, plus, he has the $83.3 million uh, that he was ordered to pay to E.G. and Carroll last month. Uh, my calculations just off the top of my head are uh, $438.2 million <laughs> this year. It's, it's only February. Uh, gosh, you know, how much? Uh, but for a billionaire like him, that's that's nothing. I, I know he said he's got millions and millions stored away in his pocket. Um, uh, Trump encourages Russia. To attack our NATO, our NATO allies, if they don't pay up, boy, who should talk about paying up, huh? Pay up, or we won't. Y'all, they can do whatever the hell they want. Okay, um, his campaign finance and hush hush fund or um, hush money payment uh, trial starts uh, March 25th. We're, that's a solid date, we think. Uh, that's the first one to pin down in New York. Uh, Prosecutor Alvin Bragg. Uh, that's just five weeks from tomorrow, so that should be here before we know it, right? It'll be spring. All right. Um, Bonnie will, will have stood in court to account for her romantic interests, and uh, we have to do that before we can move forward with the uh, RICO case against former President Donald Trump. Yeah, you must account for your romantic interests. That's very important that, that we work that out first. My goodness. My goodness. Uh, indeed, these are unusual times, to say the least. Um, it, it is... It's astonishing to me that it seems to be uh, things that we've really never encountered before. At least I haven't. Um, But how unusual? We will explore that question with our question this week. Dr. Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Indiana University. Dr. Hershey, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. That's great. We got your connection. I'm glad you were able to get through. Um, You are the author of the last, well, umpteen editions of, I guess, is it a textbook? Um, uh, Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a textbook. Okay, tell us a, a little bit about the book uh, and how, how if it's a textbook. Is it used at Indiana U? Probably. Well, uh, it, it's used in a lot of 
university and colleges around the country. Um, it's a textbook that mm-hmm. discusses party politics in America in terms of party organizations, um, the people who are party identifiers, parties in government, including Congress and the courts and various other institutions, and um, current elections. Okay. And what is the title of the book? Party Politics in America. Party Politics and it's in America. Going into, it's going into its 19th edition starting uh, right after the election. Right. So it's periodically updated, uh, presumably, with the 19 editions. Uh, and where can, where can we purchase it? Is it on Amazon or where can we, where can we get it? It is on Amazon. Okay. Party Politics in America. Dr. Uh, Marjorie Hershey, uh, Ph.D. Um, well, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll review that again on third segment for uh, in case people t- uh, tuned in a little bit late. We want to make sure that they know about that. Um, uh, I was wanted to know before we get started. Um, uh, oh, I, I, let me just get to this first. Uh, so we will be taking questions for Dr. Hershey after we get started. So uh, callers. Of course, those of you who are regulars, it's 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. We'll get to questions uh, in a little bit. But um, before we get started with, you know, uh, kind of general questions, um, Dr. Hershey, tell us what kind of science is political science? Um, and this is for not only the callers, but for listeners, but for me. Um, and um, it's a social science, I presume, but... Uh, what kinds of things in question, what kind of questions does political science ask and what kinds of things can political science tell us? Uh, and is it a, is it a, uh, a descriptive science, a predictive science, a, a historical science or all of the above? What, what kind of science is political science? If you just tell us and what kinds of uh, answers, uh, what kinds of things I want to get to know what what a political science is thinking when when she hears a question. Sure. A good way to start. Um, Political science has become increasingly data-driven. It is an empirical science in which we take a look at all kinds of data, including, for example, voting returns from all over the country. We have lots and lots of voting data in elections all the way back to the beginning of the nation. We use a lot of polling data, and there is a lot of misunderstanding of how valid those data are because uh, we often tend to kind of mix together a whole bunch of different polls, uh, some of which are valid, some of which are not. Um, In international relations, people use all kinds of data about military actions, about foreign policy, um, just about anything that that we can try to measure um, political science looks at. Questions such as, what makes a democracy work? What happens when a democracy fails? Um, What is it that causes people to vote? What are the factors that lead up to people's choices of one candidate or another? What is it that people believe about the political parties and about political institutions more generally in the United States? It's a very broad field, but it's basically data-driven. Yes. So... um I would imagine that uh, a researcher would have to be, in some ways, you know, somewhat crafty 
in using data to answer various types of questions, um, uh, I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, you know, especially ancient historians, uh, uh, biblical scholars. They have to be kind of crafty in, in how they, if you're going to use data, you have to you have to kind of think of creative ways to get to the answers that uh, to the questions that you're asking, isn't that? Is that is that the same with political science? You certainly do, except we have a tremendous advantage in that just like other social sciences and natural sciences, we have a lot of tools that all of these disciplines use, statistical tools, analytical tools, um, and those guide us in terms of how we use data and what kinds of data we feel are valid and reliable to use. Right. Okay. So I, I, I have some questions, and I, I think... You know, when I, that's why I wanted to get your take so that the, the listeners would know when you're answering a question, you're, you're hearing it in a certain way, even though my question might sound rather general or rather speculative. Um, I, I'm not a political scientist, so I don't know how to target a question like one of your colleagues would. Um, so let's start with an easy, I don't know how easy it was, but a common one. For instance, you know, my dad always used to say, oh, Paul, you know, I think politics is pretty much the same as it's always been. Uh, people get upset about things, uh, but they got, they got upset about things when grandfather was a young man, too. And, and people have always gotten upset about things. It's about the same. As it, is, it, is it about the same? In, in which ways, as a political scientist, do you look at that? And, and, or is it just that, oh, it's just because... It's now, and we think it's the worst ever, or we're most upset about it now. What, how do you look at that question? Well, people have generalized a lot about various forms of politics, and uh, there are a variety of ways in which those generalizations are incorrect. Um, yes, in terms of the institutional rules of American politics, there have been a lot of similarities over time. We have rules that make a two-party system, for example, much more likely than a multi-party system, and that's been pretty much since the beginning, ever since the Constitution. Um, there are a lot of ways in which politics has changed very dramatically over time, including, for example, the nature of the media, that candidates and um, the interest groups of various kinds use in order to get their views over to the public. Um, certainly, it's much different now than it was um, 200 years ago, even 20 years ago. Uh, so that makes a huge difference in terms of what kinds of politics people see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I'm thinking, uh, we think of political science or, or these kinds of questions just in terms of American politics and, and perhaps American or Western democracies, but there must be political science in, in questions in, uh, that can apply to monarchies of the past um, and even uh, autocratic uh, uh, governments of today. There is a there's a politics to those. Are there not? Is there not? I was I'm thinking that, you know, when when we when we invaded Iraq, for instance, um, you know, they said oh, Saddam Hussein he, he ruled Iraq with an iron fist, and I was thinking, well, we don't seem to be adverse to using iron fist in this situation. How come we're having such trouble? And I thought, well, I think Saddam Hussein also knew Iraqi politics better than than we do. And the, even in autocratic and in um, monarchies, there's a politics uh, within those systems, isn't there? 
politics is simply the effort to get what people want and in what ways and when and and um, why. And so politics exists in everything. It exists in all nations. It exists in families. It exists in schools, um, in communities. So it's just simply the effort to get what you want um, in a situation where lots of other people are likely to want different things. Right. I, I, I remember uh, a friend of mine who was, he was a psychiatrist. He actually said that uh, politics is the architectonic science. Everything that you understand, you understand through it's pretty much your, you know, a lens of politics of some sort. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you feel about that. That's the way I took it anyway. Um, well, as a uh, political scientist, would certainly agree with that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, um, so, what are the blank? What are the influences on politics today? That we may not okay, what so what are the influences on politics today? And I think you mentioned one of them that we may not have had so much of in the past. Uh, I know you mentioned the media. Uh, I'm thinking technology. Uh, what what are those? Is that are those two that would might apply? Well, the media have changed so markedly um, in the way they affect politics over the course of the last 20 to 40 years. Uh, the Internet obviously has made a real revolution in terms of political contacts. Our ability to um, use and process data. The national parties, for example, have databases now of about um, 150 million to 200 million American preferences. They gather these databases from voting rolls, from uh, various types of surveys that they do, from surveys that various other places do, such as the Nielsen ratings, um, the various kinds of uh, cards that you have. If you have a card for your grocery or a card for a department store, the chances are that at some point or another, your preferences have been recorded in the National Party's databases. That's obviously very different from the kind of stream that the National Party faced 50 years ago. They can target much more precisely than they were able to then. And they have uh, all kinds of tools, such as texting, email, um, various other types of very sophisticated and very fast techniques for analyzing huge quantities of data to help them with that targeting, to help them test which messages work best with which types of people under what circumstances. Yes. I, I would. Um, let's go back to... Uh, something you mentioned about the polling now um, and which polls are accurate and which may not be. I'm thinking, uh, you know, in 2022, uh, the Webster's word of the year was gaslight, <laughs> gaslighting. And uh, I think a lot of people thought about that, about the polls, because, you know, we were told by, by the media that it was going to be a Republican wave. It turned out to be not so much. Um and, and Democrats took control of uh, full control of states like Michigan, uh, where they now have a, uh, a you know a, a Democratic governor and hold both chambers in the state legislature, albeit uh, by, by, by narrow margin for the first time in 40 years. Um, I think about like telephone polls, um, and I and I've, I, this occurred to me 
because I sometimes work at my local Democratic office. And what we've, you know, if you come in on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock for three or four hours, um, calling people is, in three or four hours, I think the most people I've ever gotten to actually answer the phone was probably about five. And and then two of them hang up and say, you know, thanks, I don't want to talk about it. So maybe you talk to three people in four hours, and I think our, our party uh, data analy- analyzer said, you know, this is not effective. We're better off going door-to-door. So I'm thinking, well, the polling companies, they must have the same problem getting through to people as, as we do. So uh, when we come back, uh, let's talk about the polls just a little bit more, because uh, and, and, I think people will be interested to, uh, to know which polls are accurate. Now, how can they take take it. Uh, And we will be back in uh, um, just two minutes to get Dr. Hershey's answer about the polling. We'll be right back. Richardson uh, back here with you on Kitchen Table Progressive here on AM 820 WCPT. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Indiana University. And we're talking about the current political climate of the day. And just before we went to break, I was asking Dr. Hershey about the polls, which she had mentioned in the first segment, uh, about some of them are, are accurate or and some of them may, may not be. And I was, I was Dr. Hershey was about to answer uh, well, what what can we rely upon on the polls? Because we hear a lot about the polls, don't we? We do, and uh, I think it's very important to start with some basics about polling currently because there are a lot of misconceptions about it. First of all, um, most polls now that are reported publicly are very sophisticated polls. They actually are extremely predictive. People may not think so because of the fact that, first of all, obviously polls taken uh, two or three months before an election are not going to be able to predict the election results. They are simply a snapshot of what people who are polled are thinking at the time and people's thoughts can change even literally on election day. So the later the poll, the more accurate it's likely to be. Also, um, you mentioned phone polls that were used in your party organization. The reason we don't normally use those anymore is exactly what you suggested, that most people don't answer their phones. Um, Most people have call screening. Um, An awful lot of people don't have landlines, and so we simply don't have lists of their numbers when they use cell phones only. So that means that increasingly we use internet polling uh, that generates samples of people and those samples of people are um, recorded in terms of their their age, their party identification, uh, their income, their gender, their race. And then when we get those poll data, the poll takers adjust the results that they get based on what we know about the population as a whole. 
so if the population as a whole is 13% black, then uh, we adjust the responses of those black respondents in the polls to be 13% of the final poll so that we come as close as we can. Now, a lot of people are extremely dubious about polls um, because they expect an awful lot of them that polls can't provide. Any polling, if you use the kinds of statistical theories that we use to draw poll samples, will be accurate within a certain margin of error. That means if the poll says a particular candidate is likely to get 51% of the vote, what it's actually saying is that that candidate could get 49%, the candidate could get 53%, plus or minus two percentage points of the actual number. Now, in most cases, um, that's perfectly accurate and nobody uh, finds it to be inaccurate because of the fact that most elections are not close. But when an election is close, that's often where we're looking at the polls. And when we look at the polls in a close election and we find out that a particular candidate got 51% in the polls, it's entirely possible that that candidate actually got 49% of the vote. Um, so that means the difference between winning and losing. So that's why many people perceive polls to be inaccurate when they're simply between, uh, right in between the margin of error. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when we have, uh, and I have noticed that a lot, a lot of polling is you know, we're, it's trending around four and a half percent margin of error. And with uh, without getting too wonky about the uh, sample size and the square root of the, you know, of the, of the um, sample size, um, it seems to me that uh, that's yeah, I, I know that 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 is, you know, proven statistically to be accurate. That's when we see when we know we have a relatively even distribution. But some of these uh, polls, for instance, I'm thinking of the, the poll in the in the governor's race in Michigan uh, in 20 uh, last time, which was Gretchen Whitmer versus Tudor Dixon uh, was just weeks before the election was called a dead heat. And uh, Governor Whitmer won by uh, like 13 points. That that's that's not within the margin of error, even four and a half percent. How do how do we explain stuff like that? Well, we simply shouldn't be taking polls that are taken a few weeks before the election as being good predictors of what happens on election day. People change their minds. Some people um, are not absolutely convinced as to who they're going to vote for, and they may tell the pollster one thing on the beginning of October and may come to a different conclusion in November. We find, on average, about 5 to 10 percent of voters actually make their minds up in the polling booth on election day. So, so if we say, start using okay. polls even a week beforehand, we're not getting a, a response that's going to be up to date. So is there is there a, um, a statistic or uh, some factor called uh, you know voter volatility uh, that measures that? How how likely people are to change their minds? Is there a way to measure that too? Well, I think a bigger challenge that occurs, especially with polls that we're seeing now and polls that we're seeing up to fairly close to Election Day, is who is going to actually turn out to vote. 
The United States has one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any democracy in the world. Um, most other democracies turn out to vote at at least 10% and often more than that than we do. And that means that when you're polling somebody and you write down what it is that they said, you can't be 100% sure that they're actually going to show up at the polls. So their preference may remain constant, but it may be that they stay home on Election Day. So polls that uh, are taken well in advance, and including polls that are taken close up to Election Day, try to measure the propensity of an individual to actually cast a vote. That's never going to be a perfect predictor. Weird things happen. But um, you can ask people, did you vote in the last election? Uh, do you normally cast a vote? How important is this election to you? Um, can you envision any reasons why you might not cast a vote on Election Day? And different pollsters use different methods to make that determination as to whether or not to count that individual in their poll results. So they may differ in terms of their poll results, primarily in terms of the kinds of measures that they use to figure out who's likely to go to the polls. Some people may be a little bit too permissive in, in taking the views of people who are a little bit more marginal in their likelihood of casting a vote, and other polls may be much more cautious in doing so. I see. Okay. Uh, uh, let's, we have a caller who wants to ask a question. Let's, uh, let's go to Jim in Chicago. Jim has a question for Dr. Hershey. Jim, what's your question? Hi, Dr. Hank Paul. I'm gonna, I've been driven to the polls because of Trump's golden shoes. Now that he's sporting those golden shoes, I'm off the fence, and I'm going to vote for Trump. If, if Herbert Hoover would have worn golden shoes in 32, his sagging poll, his sagging poll numbers would have skyrocketed if he would have got golden shoes. And I think that that's the, that's the key to, that's a silver bullet for the grand old party. Have their politicians wear golden shoes. That'll drive to the polls like maniacs. <laughs> okay, what's the question? Okay. Go ahead. Finish it. Go ahead. You're asking me? No, uh, go, uh, is, that, is that your question? No, my question is how ridiculous is this candidate? I mean, this candidate is, is the most preposterous candidate that I've ever studied in history. I've ever studied in history. Okay. All right. Let's I mean, I don't care what century it is. I don't care what century it's in. Very basics. Uh, okay, Jim. Thanks. Okay, so Jim makes a point. How how, how unusual, uh, if the, if there's a way to measure this candidate, is Donald Trump? How how unusual is it? Is he as a candidate well, for president? Clearly, clearly, he's very unusual. Um, this is one of the ways in which um, I think the the. 2016, 2020, and 2024 elections are very difficult to compare to previous elections because Donald Trump has a unique ability to mobilize people's anger and fear. 
Um, this is a set of emotions that we know to be more powerful than most others in political action. Um, people are much more mobilized by anger and fear than they are by hope or excitement or enthusiasm. Uh, and so it's much easier to drive people to the polls when you can generate anger and fear in your campaign. President Trump uh, has been really remarkably effective in doing that, and that is obviously what he's tried to do since he came down that escalator on um, his his announcement um, that he was running for president in 2015. Um, his campaigns have been based on that, and that is generating an enemy. Now, um, right. most and, of us... Uh, yes. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, then, regarding the anger and fear, um, then I'm seeing now that Democrats, I mean, there's there's a a certain, uh, you know, laws of, uh, of physics and political science that for every anger and fear action is going to uh, generate an equal and opposite anger and fear action or reaction that Democrats are becoming angry and fearful of this man, uh, you know, with the with some of the things that he's said, and not only that, some of the things that have taken place, for instance, Supreme Court rulings such as Dobbs, I think have have made women extremely angry. Uh, so go ahead with that. Yeah. So, I mean, is that, is well, that the Democratic I, motivation now, too? It's anger and fear versus anger and fear? <laughs> well, I think that it's certainly been the case throughout our history that anger and fear have been extremely powerful motivators, but... Trump is just better at it than most previous political leaders have been. Um, he also came at a time that was uniquely um, susceptible to anger and fear. I mean, particularly since 2020, we've just been through a horrendous pandemic. We tend to treat it as uh, fairly lightly in the rearview mirror, but we lost uh, over a million Americans to it. And an awful lot of people's habits and daily work were dramatically altered as a result of that pandemic. We have a world that is, um, as it has always been, very hostile. But uh, we know more about that now because the Internet tells us about it within seconds every day. So when people get anxious, they are more vulnerable to appeals to anger and fear. And that's something right. that Trump has had, really capitalized on. Right. But we had, I'm thinking in recent times, uh, Ronald Reagan was one who captured, uh, I mean, very successfully captured the electric with hope and uh, the shining city on the hill metaphors. Uh, that, that was, he, I, I don't think he was trying to make people angry, but he was, whatever you think of his his morality, or, uh, you know, that was, it was goodness. I think it was more a, ho- a hopeful message than certainly in comparison to, to Donald Trump. I mean, this is a, these are these are night and day messages, aren't they? Well, they are, but uh, not all of Reagan's messages were positive and hopeful, and not all of Trump's messages, although most of them uh, have been uh, full of anger and fear. Not all of them have been. Um, it's uh, we we have to be careful about using generalization because uh, a lot of generalizations have major exceptions, and we have to keep those in mind, or else we reach the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to ask about the last time we had a president who was elected and then uh, then defeated and then ran again, and we had the Grover Cleveland era. And I, I've never really understood, okay, I understand that probably Chester, President Chester Arthur was not popular, so they want, the, the America wanted Grover Cleveland. But then they didn't like him, and they went for Benjamin Harrison. But then they didn't like him and went back to Cleveland, and this was before the, what, 22nd Amendment, and then, then they fell out of love with Cleveland again and, and went for William McKinley. What was America, is there a history that makes sense to why America did, and, and is it in any way comparable to the situation with uh, Trump and Biden? Sure. Um, and it's, again, because we have to be very careful about generalizing. It wasn't America that chose Cleveland at one time and not others. It was a certain number of individual voters. Most of those probably chose consistently in both of those elections, when they chose Cleveland and when they didn't. Uh, a few Americans who switched or a few Americans who didn't come out to vote one year and did come out to vote the next year made all the difference. We're a fairly closely divided society. And uh, right now, for example, the number of Democrats and Republicans in the voting population is really about equal. So that means that given that we have a voting turnout rate in presidential elections at best of only 60 percent, if we have a turnout of 62 percent, and that additional 2% is dominantly Republican, then we may uh, end up going from Joe Biden to Donald Trump. But that isn't because America changed its mind. It's because at the margins, um, some smaller changes occurred that were sufficient in a closely divided polity. Oh, so I, I see. So the, this, the, the ideology of America is not so volatile so much as the, the margins of who showed up. And that, of course, um, is, is, I think I'm, I'm correct in saying that the, the first time that we had the voters turn out or that all the, all the legislatures had uh, decided to choose electors for president uh, based on the popular vote in their state was the election of 1880. It was James A. Garfield, I think, was before that. We just had the electors. The, the, the legislatures just chose the electors in whichever... Uh, manner the legislatures uh, determined, but um, let's we'll get back to some more questions. We have a short break here, and we'll get back to our questions with uh, Dr. Hershey uh, in just about two minutes and two seconds. And we'll be back with you for a final look at politics, the climate of politics in America today. We'll be right back. Yeah, and Paul Richardson uh, back here again with you on Kitchen Table Progressive for a Sunday evening. I'm talking with Dr. Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Indiana University. And as I promised, uh, Dr. Hershey, could you uh, briefly just tell us one more time the name of the title of your book and, uh, again, a little bit about what it is and where we can get it again. Just one more time. With the listeners. It's Party Politics in America, and there will be a new 19th edition uh, probably within about a month after the election in November. Okay, and it is available on Amazon. Yep. yep. Party Politics 
in America. 19th edition will be available after the election. So it, it sounds like, from what we've been talking about so far, um, it, it's really <laughs> it goes without saying. Voting is really important because it comes down to, and certainly did come down to a few, a very few votes in 2016, uh, which put Donald Trump over the top, at least um, in terms of the electoral vote. And I asked about the uh, <laughs> the Grover Cleveland. Benjamin Harrison phenomena, and uh, Dr. Hershey says it was essentially the same thing. Uh, It's really important that we vote. Uh, That's all we have. And I I can remember um, uh, President Obama saying that, uh, you know, people, it's just so often that, uh, you know, we we put a, a, Democrats especially, we put we put a president in there and give him no Congress to work with. And uh, President Obama, I think he did come out and say something like, "Look, I presume that this is the Congress you wanted me to work with." So, you know, not voting and protesting by not voting is, is sort of the old say is to cutting off your nose to spite your face. Is I think of oh, <laughs> that's what I could think a- of. Absolutely, uh, we we have some very good political science research that shows that um, particular areas within a congressional district get more attention from the member of Congress when their voter turnout rate is higher. Really. So uh, people who are in office are very aware of where their votes come from, of which are the people they need to pay attention to and which are the people they don't. They know, for example, that in the past, with respect to the abortion issue, pro-lifers were much more likely to turn out to vote than people who believed in abortion rights. Since the Dobbs decision, which is um, characteristic of a psychological phenomenon that we call negativity bias, where people are much more sensitive to having something taken away than they are to being promised something. It's why various governors who have uh, cut taxes don't get rewarded as much as governors who have raised taxes get punished. We're just oh. a lot more uh, sensitive to negativity than we are to various uh, hopes or opportunities. And so since the Dobbs decision, it's been people who believe in abortion rights who have had a higher turnout rate than people who oppose abortion rights. Um, politicians know that, and they pay a lot of attention to that in terms of who they talk to, what they say, what votes they cast in Congress. The folks in the Republican Party in the House of Representatives right now are casting the votes they do, not because this is something that's inbred in them, but rather because they know that the people who turn out in Republican primaries are much more likely to be right-wing than people who vote in the general election. And if they're going to run in the general election, first they have to win the primary. So that means that the stands they take reflect the voters in the primary. And typically turnout in a primary might be 20%, 25%. It might even be 10% or 15 If you're one of those 15, you're getting a lot more attention to your views and your issues than uh, if you're not. Interesting. So the, uh, there's actually a lot of psychology uh, involved in political science. And psychology, uh, I think, might, as a social science as well, uh, be similar in the way it collects data um, and, and 
or at least at least how it has to be sort of crafty in, in using data to, to ask and uh, to answers to questions. Uh, it applies here in political science. Um, yeah, uh, go, go ahead. Sorry. Well, psychology, uh, the part of psychology that is called social psychology is, is really quite similar in the types of techniques right. it uses. Other mm-hmm. types of analysis in psychology involve brain science, where they literally do work in the lab. Um, they experiment on animals. They use various types of experiments on people. We have some political science work that has done that, that, for example, does um, various kinds of imaging work with the brains of liberals and conservatives and compares them and finds systematic differences between the brains of liberals and conservatives. Right. Uh, yeah, conservatives, for example... Conservatives, for example, are, are uh, much more quickly reactive to things that bother them than liberals are. Liberals show a higher degree of just literal physiological tolerance of things that they don't like than conservatives do. Would, uh, for instance, uh, I don't know if, this, if there's data about this, but if you're familiar with the uh, Myers-Briggs personality assessment um, mm-hmm. Is there a certain type of Myers-Briggs uh, personality that tends to be conservative versus uh, tends to be uh, more liberal? I think that Myers-Briggs is not used as much these days as it used to be. There are yeah. a variety of types of personality tests, but yes, we certainly do find that liberals differ in terms of personality characteristics than conservatives do, and the greater tolerance of liberals is especially interesting and important because it means that conservatives may be able to use anger more effectively than liberals okay. can. Right. They may be right. able to I do a, a more effective job of um, upsetting the people who are likely to support them than liberals are. Right. I, I see that. Yeah, we went yeah, with Trump. And, well, we have another caller. Uh, Richard has a question. Uh, Richard would like to ask a question for Dr. Hershey. Richard, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, you know, I uh, you, you talked about uh, Reagan and this positive message, and it seems to me, and I think it t- ties into where we are now, is that it really wasn't used racism to such an extent, um, more than many other uh, prior politicians. So, uh, I, I, whenever I hear people talk about, well, we wish we were Reagan Republicans, or you know, more of them. I mean, really, they're not much different than the ones we have now, and. And uh, I think that ties into your fear, you know, fear and uh, as a motivator. Uh, so I don't think Reagan is any positive, really had much of a positive message. Otherwise, he, he wouldn't have been elected, I think. So, okay. So, so I, I think, Richard, yeah, I, Richard, go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, that's sort of basically it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I think Richard's asking if it was a little bit echoey. I don't know if you were able to hear the question, Dr. Hershey. I think he's asking. Were you able to hear it? Well, yes, I can I'll try again here in a second. Okay, let's let Dr. Hershey. Uh, she, she thinks she heard it. Go, go ahead, Dr. Hershey. 
Okay. Um, we can certainly measure these things. One of the ways we do that is through what's called content analysis. This is a type of technique that's used in a lot of social sciences in which we uh, simply find out how many times one particular idea is referenced in a politician's speech or in a news column compared to another. So that we find, for example, that traditionally in uh, media in the United States, and I'm sure every place else as well, um, terms that involve conflict and drama and uh, immediacy and uh, human interest are much more likely to be referenced in news columns than are terms that involve some form of consensus or bipartisanship. And that's because of the readers, you and me, um, we're much more likely to provide an audience for conflict and drama than we are to hear about good things. We so often hear newspapers criticized and other kinds of media criticized for emphasizing the negative. Well, they know what it is we read. Uh, and what we read is about conflict and negatives rather than about uh, everything is, is uh, happy and dandelions and, and sweetness and light. Right. So that, that kind of gives me the, um, well, I guess, the, uh, the, uh, the idea of attitudes. And I think I remember from my days in social science uh, back at Michigan State University, if, if this de definition, the definition of an attitude is, is something like um, cognitions, they're charged with emotion that may predispose behavior and uh, it, 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 reinforcing attitudes. Is, I mean, what, obviously a, a politician wants your behavior to be vote for me. Uh, so mm -hmm. how, how he gets the cognitions to be charged with the emotion, apparently uh, anger being a popular one. So I, I think uh, with regard to racism, uh, as, the, as Richard was referring to, uh, and creating fear, uh, fear of another race, that they're going to take over and take your opportunities. And that, again, taking things away from you. This is who's taking. It's, it's not you and your screw ups in life. It's somebody took away your opportunity or, or got your job. As I think that's more of the kinds of uh, cognitions and, and emotions that you're talking about. More taking away really affects people. Um, we've heard about I want to ask you this question. Um, We've heard people say that uh, the Republican Party is not the same. It certainly seems to be a different party than it used to be. I'm just curious, what does it look like when a party dies? For instance, whatever happened to the Whigs, uh, you know, and, and why it gave way to the Republican, the, the Lincoln Republican Party? What, what happens when a party dies? Typically, that's caused by internal conflict, and uh, the internal conflict results in losing elections. Um, remember, though, that the Whigs died uh, about 150 years ago, and we haven't had a major party that's died since that time. That's in part because of the fact that our election laws favor two major parties. They make it very difficult for a third party or an independent to come in. So often people say, oh, well, why don't we look at the third-party candidates? Well, unless we change the election rules, third-party candidates are just simply not going to have uh, any real fair chance of winning elections. So um, the Republican Party's changes have been very interesting. This is a case in which 
turnout, the turnout of extreme right-wing conservatives in Republican primaries, have pulled that party to the right to such a degree that um, it's really become something of an outlier in American history. And uh, eventually, a corrective will occur, but it's going to take a while. Parties are slow learners. And the kinds of people whom they listen to the most are the people who come to the polls and who yell the loudest. And those at the moment are supporters of Donald Trump and people who are right-wing conservatives. So it probably will be a few elections before the Republicans decide that they've moved off the center to a great enough extent that they need to do some recalculating as to where they are going to be able to be effective in winning elections. Well, and you mentioned uh, internal struggles. And I, I mentioned Michigan because I have family there. And I mean, the Michigan Republican Party is in a shambles. They uh, are hundreds of thousand dollars in debt with unpaid bills. I think they closed their party headquarters in Lansing. And as a matter of fact, couldn't even play the electric bill and the uh, the electronic locks on the uh, I read on the on the doors of the building failed, and people were just walking in. Uh, and yeah. yet they stuck with the um, they stuck with their party chair, who has actually just driven the party in the ground. And then there was a big fight over who actually is the party chair in Michigan and for the GOP. That seems like a party, and maybe this will have to happen more at the state level because I don't think Michigan is the only example of that one. Uh, so maybe maybe the party starts to fail at the state level, and then they lose those states, and maybe the RNC or whatever happens. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. It's kind of like uh, when you have maintenance in your house. It's it's one little thing after another, uh, and then you discover the major rot in your wood or in your roof or whatever that, that finally brings it down. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, yeah. uh, Doctor Hershey. I, I wish you were, we're out of time. Um, but I, it's just been so interesting. We never, we didn't, I didn't get to half of the questions I wanted to talk to, but um, we will do it again uh, soon. If you're willing, I'd, I'd love to have you come on a, a, another time or two before the election, and we'll we'll talk about it again. But uh, thank you very much uh, for being with us. You are most welcome. And everybody listening, go out and vote. You heard it right there, ladies and gentlemen. Go out and vote that makes the difference. And we will see you again. You will will hear us again next Sunday night at 6 p.m. here on Kitchen Table Progressive right here on AM 820 WCPT Chicago's Progressive Talk Heartland Signal. We'll see you next time.